turn back to Job chapter 26. As you're well aware of, we have been uh, taking a study on, or in the middle of a study on how to build a relationship with the Lord. So important as a Christian, and there's so many young Christians that God has given us in the last couple of months that just really want to build a foundation in their life. So we've talked about those areas, and we'll continue to talk about them, but we've been defining some things. Obviously, there's things in the Bible that you need to know to build a relationship with God, and I guess the most important teaching in the Bible would be the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, it's so important that we as God's people understand how God sees us. I think so many times we operate under the false idea of how God looks at us. And you would be surprised, the people that, that I talk to in life, that, that uh, you know, they all their whole life based on how they view God viewing them. There's people who actually live in terror because they think that because they maybe did something wrong or because it, you know, they have had a bad past, that God is just looking for the opportunity, you know, to do something terrible to them. And, of course, that's not true. And we tried to show you from the Bible how that you build a relationship with God and, uh, and try to show you how that God does look at you. Now, that doesn't mean that as a believer that there's not going to be any accountability for the way we live our lives because the Bible teaches that every born-again child of God someday is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are going to give an account. God has a plan. God saved us for a purpose and for a reason and gave us the Word of God so we could find out that plan to understand uh, what God wanted us to accomplish. And then there's going to be a day when Christ comes back that He's going to hold us accountable to the Word of God of what He did. And uh, it's, an, it's an incredible thing. You know, I, uh, we talked about the book of Ecclesiastes the other night, and I thought to myself, you know, what a, what a book for the day and age that we live in. And I told you how that, you know, that people today just do not have an understanding of God. There is no knowledge of God today. And I was, you know, I was looking at the, uh, uh, I, was, I was watching the news this week and, and all the different things that was taking place and transpiring and, and uh, you know, the big issue over the, as I said Thursday night, over the Ten Commandments down in Alabama, you know, and all of that. And uh, people were just, people were just unbelievably uh, ignorant of the fact of, of who God is. I and mean, we talk about God all the time. And we, we talk about God as far as, you know, uh, you know him, the concept of God. But we, we put God now on the same level as all the other gods out there. And uh, the issue was, it come up, it, it, and it struck me. You know, it, it, it was very obvious that the, this country, and if not the whole world, you know, just has lost sight of the power of God. Isaiah chapter 45 through Isaiah chapter 50 is just some of the greatest chapters that talks about that there are no other gods beside the Lord. And I was sitting there and I was watching it this week and, I, and, and, a, and a verse came to mind. And, you know, I told you Thursday night that the five books in the Bible uh, that are called the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, the Strong Psalm, and those books, you know. And, and within those books lies everything that's the foundation. 
And I was watching this, you know, this argument going on about religion, God, you know, God, man's rights and all this stuff to myself. And they, people were acting like, honest to goodness, they were acting like that they, that they were in charge of everything and that God was just some obscure concept out there. And then a, a, a verse came into my mind, and it's in Proverbs, and it, 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 it just flew in. And it was in Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, said this. He said, consider the ant. Consider the ant. And I, as I thought of that, I thought to myself, that's, that's an incredible thing. The wisest man that ever lived said one of the wisest things at that point, and yet when you look at that and we think, well, what is so, what is so wise about that? <laughs> Do you ever go out in your yard and watch the ants? I went one step farther than that when I was a kid. I owned a legitimate ant farm. My goal was to have an ant circus at one time and make millions of dollars, but they all died. But believe it or not, years ago, you could buy ant farms. You could, Edmund Scientific catalog, those places, you could send away and you'd get a glass, you'd get a glass thing about that big, about that wide, and you put dirt in it and you put ants in it. And the ants borrowed and made, and you could actually, it was glass on both sides, so you could see all the runways and all the little things down through there. And it was, a, it, you know, it was for kids. You know, I was a kid, and my uncle or my aunt, somebody, gave me an ant farm. And I had it for a long time, you know. I can't remember if the ants came with it or you had to supply your own or it was maybe dry ants and you had to add water. I don't remember how it was. But anyway, but there it was, and I had that for years. And I, and I, and I, and it was for, after I was saved and I read that thing in Proverbs, it all come together because I used to, as a kid, used to go out and I used to, I used to, in my yard, you know, there's, you watch those ants. You realize that, that ants have somebody who's in charge. They're a little society. They have a, we have a queen. She has attendants. I mean, uh, it's a, it's a little society. They have, they have worker ants. They have warrior ants. You know the ants comes in all different kinds of sizes. You know the ants are different colors. I mean the ant. I mean the ant society is a is is much like our society. You have big ants, small ants. I mean you got red ants, you got black ants, you got white ants. <clears throat> I, I never looked that close, but I guess you got good looking ants and ugly ants. I don't know, but I mean. They, 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 but Solomon said, "Consider the ant. Consider the ant, thou sluggard." And then he talks about the ants. And I was struck this week. Well, all this goes on because, you know what? Those ants get into your yard and they build their kingdoms. They build their kingdoms up and they build them down under the ground and those ants live in your yard and they are oblivious to who you are. And you know what? You go out and you see the little ant things and you stamp them all down, you know, and you feel good about yourself, you know, because you just wipe the thing out. You come back the next day, they got it built again. My ant farm, I mean, I sit there and I watch that thing, and those ants, those, I would watch them as a kid. I even got a magnifying glass, and I would watch what they were doing, you know, all those things, you know, and, and, and never one time did I ever catch an ant looking back at me. He was oblivious to the fact that they were in an ant farm. As far as they knew, that was their world, and they were in charge of that world. And in my yard, they have no idea. I mean, if you could get them to pay a rent, we'd be rich. But you can't. You know why? Because it, they, they're oblivious to that. They think that what they're doing is the only thing that they're doing, and that is their little world and their little kingdom. 
and my little ant farm as a kid growing up, you know what? They, they didn't care who I was. And one day, I tired of the ant farm. So I went in, and I just picked, and I was getting older then, you know, and getting interested in girls. Ants didn't interest me anymore, you know. And, and I was about 15 or 16, 17 years old, and I just took that whole ant thing. My mother said, get rid of that. You know, we don't want it around here. And the ants had gotten out of the top of it a few times. You know, that was not a good deal either. And so I just took that whole ant farm and just took it out and threw it in the trash. And those ants were dead. And the fact that that was, the fact that they were living in there and they had their own kingdom and they had their own world and they were doing their own thing made nothing to do with me. You know why? Because the bottom line was, I owned the ant farm. And being an owner of the ant farm, I did with the ant farm what I wanted to do. When I go out in my yard, I stomp them little things down all over the place. I, I hate to confess this to you because it's kind of a silly, but I, I, sometimes I pretend I, I'm, I'm a bomber pilot flying over, the, over my backyard. I do this a lot at night because the neighbors don't want to see it. And I put my arms out, you know, and I'm swooping over that thing like a B-1 bomber. And I'm looking. I'm, first, I survey it. And I look at all these little... I got a lot of ant kingdoms in my yard. And they build a little castles. And they're really neat. They're intricate, boy. And I fly over those things. And I look at them. And then I swoop back. And I come in on my run. And I stomp them down like I'm just bombing the whole thing to pieces. Next day, they build it up again. I tear it down again. One of these days, I'm going to get a bulldozer and do the whole thing out of the backyard. But the bottom line is, they, they're oblivious to me. They do not understand that that yard that they're living in was bought and paid for by me. We bought that lot 20-some years ago. Not that old, but a long time ago. We bought that lot. That is my lot. But they're living on it like they think it's theirs. That ant farm was mine, but those little ants thought that that was theirs. And I learned this great truth when Solomon said, consider the ant. You know what? We're like a bunch of ants. We think we own this thing down here. We are living our lives like it's our ant farm. We are living our lives like this old earth down here and everything on it belongs to man and God doesn't figure. I got news for you. He bought the field. He created this world. He made this world. And it's his. And the fact that man loses sight of that and suddenly puffs himself up and blows himself to the place in his ego that he thinks he's in charge, that he is really in charge of his own destiny, and he is plotting the course of mankind, i got news for you. There's coming a day when the owner of this ant farm is going to walk in and say, I'm tired of it. And the Bible says the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat, and God is going to build a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, the wisest man that ever lived saw that. And when I see all that stuff out there, and I see men, human beings, acting like they're God, thinking that God is dead, thinking that God isn't interested, thinking that God is some obscure concept somewhere that is a crutch for man to lay on, and yet the whole concept of, of, of God, somebody said to me one time, Could you prove, uh, can you prove there is a God? You know, I, you, know I'll, you, 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 you show me a God and prove to me a God and, I, and I'll believe it. I can prove to you there's a God. No question about it. I can prove to you to such a certain degree that you'll have to walk away with one or two things. You'll have to walk away saying, I believe in God. He was right. Or you'll walk away and say, I don't want to accept what he said and I don't believe it. You can prove it. Everybody says, well, you've got to trust him by faith. you just got to believe in God by faith. That's stupid. You don't have to just believe in God by faith. I can prove to you there is a God. No question about it. I can prove to you. Jesus Christ himself said, hey, he says, I can prove to you who I am. 
I can prove to you who I am. So it's one of those things where when I look at my life as a Christian, I know this. I know if an unsaved man is going to give an account to God on this old ant farm and God's going to come down and just wipe this thing out and man's oblivious to it and man thinks he's in charge and he's in charge of his own destiny and he's down here to uh, make all this money, to live all this good life, to have all this fun and then you just, you know, maybe uh, when, when you're dead everybody's got their own idea what happens when you die. The Bible's got its own idea too and it's the right idea. But the bottom line is this. One of these days God's going to come down and He's going to hold mankind accountable. The Bible says God judges unsaved men. The Bible says God judges nations. The Bible says the wicked shall be turned in hell and all the nations that forget God. God judges nations just like He judges individuals, unsaved men and women. And if God judges nations and God's going to judge the world someday, I can promise you that God is going to judge His people. Because God put us down here part of that plan. Your job is figuring out the ant farm concept. I mean, that's just a little thing, but boy, I mean, tell you what, Solomon spent a lot of time studying ants, and he realized the fact that, you know what, this is God's world, it isn't mine, because it's easy to believe that. The more educated you get, the smarter our culture becomes, the more nice things we have and the flashy things, and the more man is in charge of all of it, the more he elevates himself to the place where he thinks he's God. And pretty soon he puts the concept of God aside. God is an abstract now. God is not reality. God is an abstract. And now I'm in charge and I'm God. Hey, 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 hey. You better go back and see who bought the ant farm. Just as I walked in that room and took mine and threw it away, one of these days God's going to come back and wipe this thing out and God's going to set it up his own kingdom. Now, with all that being said, I'm telling you, the thing that bothers me about the Bible, and I told you this last week, is the questions that God asks. I told you. I went, you go through that Bible, you find that God asks some questions. He says, I know is of a truth, but how should man be just with God? Man says, I'm going to be just with God. I'm going to be just with God. I can be just with God. He says, how are you going to contend with God? He says, you can't answer one question in the thousand that God would ask. Yet when I come through that Bible, I find a lot of questions. I told you last week, first question the devil asked in the Bible was, did God really mean what he said? First question God asked in the Bible is, hey Adam, where are you? And those are the two questions that have permeated man's kind and existence all down through history. The devil wants to put a question mark behind everything that God says and God does that in, that in, that in the years that we live in now, in the 21st century, in the 20th century, we really doubt that God meant what he said. That's not original. That was the devil's plan in the beginning. The first thing he said to the first man and woman on this planet is the thing that he says to every man and woman today. Did God really mean what he said? Is there really a God? Is God really real? Can you really trust the Bible? Is it with all that you've got and all modern science and all psychology and psychiatry and all the strides in medicine and science, is God really relevant today? That's the question. You see, God showed up to Adam and Eve back there, and God told Adam and Eve some specific things. And then God went on about his business, and, and while he was gone, the devil showed up, and the devil come in, and he sowed doubt in what God said. God told Adam and Eve how to get along in life, and if they did what he said, everything would be just fine. You know what the Bible says? The Bible's the book that tells you how to get along in life, and if you do it, everything will be fine. You know what the devil comes in? He comes in and says, did God really mean that? I mean, uh, does God really, that God really, does God really care for you? 
Every time a little baby dies of some tragic illness or death, the devil steps in and says, is that a loving God? Every time some great tragedy happens, uh, the devil comes in through the news media or somebody and says, where is God in all of this? Does God really care? And the dumb, stupid people of this planet, because they have no concept of God, they have no knowledge of God, they have no understanding of God, they fall right into the trap and they think that they're running everything. And God's people fall into the same trap. Oh, you may be saved and on your way to heaven. I may be saved on my way to heaven, but let's face it. God's people are afflicted by the same things that afflict the world. Don't you think for a minute that God's people don't get lost in the shuttle, a shuffle of all this going on and come out not having a working relationship with God either? And the thing that I want to talk to you about that we started last week is found in Job chapter 26. I told you there were six questions here. And, and, and you saw it last week when we talked about the first two. And I, I stated it to you before we ever talked about it, but if you were here last week, you're aware now that the only ones that can answer these questions or say people. These, I mean, in the Bible, there is questions. I'll show you some questions for lawyers. I'll show you some questions for doctors. I'll show you some questions for scientists. I'll show you some questions for atheists. I'll show you some questions. I'll show you questions that God's going to ask. You know the great white throat judgment is going to be like a court trial. Do you know that? You realize that if you study the Bible, you realize that you as an unsaved man, not you because most of you are saved or all of you are saved, but you realize that you as a believer, as an, a believer, that an unsaved man or woman is going to stand there and they're going to have a chance to defend themselves. It isn't a thing where God just going to come and drag somebody and throw them in hell. No, no. As the old expression goes, you'll have your day in court. You'll have your day in court. And you'll be able to stand there and try to give a defense of your righteousness against God's righteousness. Because in essence, what a man or a woman is saying is, I don't need the death on the cross. I don't need God. I don't need those things. My good works, my righteousness is as good as God's righteousness. And you will have your chance to stand there before God and the assembled universe to show everybody how much you know about the subject. And at your right hand will be the prosecuting attorney. Now the prosecuting attorney, this one in this case, will know everything about you. It'll be the devil himself. Because he has one plan and purpose in life. And that is to get you to do for him everything that you can do. And then he's going to damn your soul to hell and get you in hell. And he knows more about you than anything in the whole wide, anybody in the whole wide world. And he will stand there and everything you say to answer God to the questions that God is going to ask you. And you try to open your mouth, he's going to knock you down because he's going to know what really was in your heart. Oh, it's going to be a tragic time. It's going to be a terrible thing. And I look at that and I think of all the people that's lived down through, down through time. and That thing could last a million years. Because you're going to have a chance to stand there before God as an unsaved man, an unsaved woman, and plead your case. You don't like God now. You don't like the Bible now. You think religion is stupid. You think that Christianity is for old folks and kids. Fine. You'll have your day to stand there and show the assembled universe how tough you really are. And it ain't a matter whether you will or whether you won't. It's just a matter of when it will happen. Because there is questions in this Bible 
And I know enough about the Bible to know that this is God's book, and God never does anything in this book without a reason. And when God asks some questions, God's going to ask them to somebody. Now, for you and for me as believers, someday God's going to ask some questions. God saved you. God called you. God told you to study the ants. Figure it out. Find out what's going on in life. Realize what's happening. Because someday you're going to give an account. God has a plan for everybody in this room if you're saved. God wants, has something that He wants you to accomplish. He wants to put people in your life. He doesn't matter what circumstances you're in. Good marriage, bad marriage, no marriage, whatever. God says, if you want to do what's right, I will take you where you're at and we will accomplish something. Maybe all you'll ever get done in life is to raise your kids the way God wants you to raise them and train them up, get them saved, and have them do what's right. That's a major accomplishment in America today. The Bible says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. When I look back there, Noah preached for 120 years, and the only ones that I find got saved was his family. I ain't too sure about one of them. So last week we began to talk about, we would talk about six questions. We talked about two of them. The first one was, how hast thou helped them that is without power? And we talked about the fact that someday God's going to ask me the question of what I did after I was saved to help people who have no power. That's an unsaved man or an unsaved woman. We went through that last week. The, the ability to, to help people that have no power. An unsaved man or an unsaved woman is powerless to do anything in this world to overcome the circumstances that they have. You say, well, well I know somebody that overcome. Well, the bottom line is that I'm talking about is death. It makes no difference that a man rises out of the slums of New York, becomes a multimillionaire, and does all kinds of good if he dies and goes to hell in the end of his life. I'm talking about overcoming the ultimate. The thing that every man and woman really wants to overcome. The reason why our society spends millions and millions of dollars every year for scientific strides to try to cure cancer, try to do this. Well, my goodness, folks, you realize right now as we speak, there are men and women that wanted to live so bad and had so much money that after they died, they had themselves put in big steel containers filled with dry ice, and they're now cooling off someplace about 400 degrees below zero, thinking that someday when medical science or medical stride comes along the line someplace and has a cure for that, they can be resurrected back and brought back to life. Now, what is wrong with that? Where is that coming from? People want to live forever. You know how I know you want to live forever? Because of the way you live right now. Oh, you find some people that are disjointed with life. But our bottom line is, you find people that commit suicide. Sure you do. That's because they've come to a point in their life where they don't see any way out. The average person in this life wants to live forever. I mean, they, 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 I mean there's, men that, there's men that have millions and millions of dollars, and they get some, they get some uh, terminal disease, and they'll spend every dime that they can, and they got. Why? Because they want to stay alive. The bottom line is that man wants to overcome the one thing that man will never overcome, and that is death. Because the only way you can overcome death is to hook up with the one who did. And that's Christ. Because he di died, was buried, rose again the third day, if you can put your faith and trust in him, you never have to worry about dying in the sense of the Bible dying. I don't say man has no power. Then the second question was, how savest thou the arm that hath no strength? Once a person gets saved, he's now part of the body. 
He's part of the body, but he has no strength. And we talked about how that, we talked about how that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, an un- uh, when a man gets saved, he has power. Uh, when a man gets saved, he has power, but he has no strength. And we talked about how that you transfer power into strength by exercising your senses in the Word of God. We talked about that last week. Now, the third question we want to get into today, and we're going to finish this up today, and this will be our, well, I hope we do, and this will be our last study uh, on the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to move on to another subject next week. But the third question that is here is simply this. How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? Now, there's people out there that get themselves into some real messes. We look at the word counsel. We think of counselor, and we think of a specific group of, of, of people within our culture. We think of, you know, we think of, uh, you know, in the afternoon, my wife likes to walk, doc, watch Dr. Phil. And I like some of the things that he does. I like some of the things that he says. I always give her a tough time about it, but he's got some good things to say. In the Christian world, we like Dr. Dobson, Dr. Gothard, Dr. Naramore, Dr. Falwell. If you're unsaved, you like Dr. Brothers. Everybody has, everybody has people that they listen to to get, to get life straightened out. And so we think of the word counselor. We think of the word counselor in a specific setting that if somebody has to go and, you know, spend years and years and years learning all of the psychology traits and the therapy traits and all of the different types of counseling, you know, and the thetic and, and the, all the stuff, you know, we don't have time to get into this point. And finally then, then you're some kind of counselor. Or on the other hand, we think of somebody in the Christian world, somebody who uses the Bible, knows the Bible, and, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they're specifically, uh, I mean, you could go down through the thing, you'll find counseling services that specify Christian counseling. You'll find other places that are, you know, state-certified, state-certified counselor, you know. You can find it all you want. That's not the Bible's definition. Let me tell you something. Counseling, from the Bible's definition, is just telling somebody what they need to do based on the Bible. Now, I know we make a lot of that, and obviously the more you know about the Bible, the more depth you can go in dealing with people. I've, for years, i put people that come in to see me with problems, I've always put them into three categories. I always, I always put them in band-aids and methylate, heart attacks and academic, or broken legs and appendectomies. That's the second class. And then heart transplants and brain surgery. That's third class. The first group is just a group that just maybe have some social malfunctions that you can work with very easily. Second group have a little more serious problems. You have to spend some more time and get a little deeper and deal with some things. And the third one Man, I mean, they're, they're, very, they're very tedious. Take a long time. They're very deep. But I found that no matter whether it's on one end or the other end, I found that simply counseling is simply this. And I tell everybody this. And some of you have heard this before. But if you don't get anything else of what I... You know, every time I preach, I always tell you there's one thing you want to get. There's a design behind that. I don't care if you hear anything else I said. I mean, I hope you do. No, I hope you don't, so you buy the tape. Because then when you're done with it, you give it to somebody else. And you don't have the courage to throw it away. They probably do. But anyway, I used to tell people this. People come in, you know, and they come in with marital problems or they come in with personal problems. And I, and I would tell them, I'd listen to them. You know, you've got to let people talk. Let them get it out of their system. Because everybody feels better when they're sick after you throw up. No, I'm serious. But that's true. When you're sick and you don't feel good and you're 
and you're really feeling bad, when you know when you go and you got bad stomach, you know when you throw up, you feel better for a while. You get it out of your system. Well, in dealing with emotional, spiritual problems, it's the same thing. And only the throwing up is getting out, verbalizing what you're feeling. In one case, it's verbalizing the spoiled sausage you ate last night, and the other one is verbalizing what you're feeling inside your emotions. So I let them talk for a while, and then I, then I say this, because here is the crux of counseling. I'm going to give you your degree in counseling. You can pick it up on your way out this morning, and you'll be certified. But here it is. You've heard, some of you have heard this before. I always tell this. You know what? Now, I've listened to him for 40 minutes now. I listen to him. I listen to her. Or if it's just one, I listen to them. And they told me all about the circumstances. They told me all about this. You know, sometimes, you know, I, when there was two of them in there and they were really going at it, I, I stopped them for a minute, went to the next room and put on a striped shirt with a whistle and came back in and refereed. Sometimes it was very violent. Sometimes it was very violent words. Sometimes it was, it was just very hard. Uh, you know, and they struggled through what they were struggling with. And when they were all done, I looked around my office, and I mean, there was chunks of stuff laying everywhere. And I simply would say there, I'd tell them a story. I'd say, you know what? This is like one of those things where the guy just, it seems like, you know, where the guy's telling all these things, and then you say, you know what? I got some really good news. And he says, you got an answer to my problem? No, I just saved a lot of money on my car insurance. That, that, that's the way this thing kind of starts out. But it doesn't end that way. And I'd say, I'd say, you know, I'd say, last week, I came home from work, and my wife told me that the refrigerator was on the blink. Wasn't keeping stuff cold. And she said, we're going to get a new refrigerator. Well, the refrigerator's $500. We're going to get a refrigerator. Being the handyman that I am, I can fix that refrigerator. In fact, when we bought that refrigerator, it came with a manual that had all the troubleshooting spots and even had an 800 number that you could call if it wasn't working right, and they would walk you through it. And I said, I can fix this. I know I can. And we're not going to spend $500 for a refrigerator until I get in there and see it because I'm pretty mechanically inclined. So I went through the thing there, and I said, honey, and she said, well, all those books are in this drawer over here. I went over to the drawer, started in there, you know, television, microwave, television, microwave, this one over here, stereo set, this one over here, here's the car stuff over here, this one, well, we ain't had this for two years, you know. And finally I went through there, honey, I don't see it in here. It's got to be in there. That's the only place it would be. When my wife says that, don't ask any more questions. It's in there. You can't find it. So then I come to the point where I say, you know what? I don't know where that thing is. But you know what? Here's the handbook to my microwave oven. I am going to fix my refrigerator based on the handbook to the microwave oven. Now, before we go any farther, you know that's absolutely ridiculously stupid. You know why? Because there's two different designs involved. First of all, the microwave was not designed by the same company that made a refrigerator. The electrical schism is not the same. Schismatic, schism in the trade. It's not the same. Nothing about it is the same. My refrigerator is real big and real wide. My microwave is real small and real short. You put things in the refrigerator to keep them cold. Now, this is deep. You put things in the microwave to make them hot. <laughs> Write that down. You don't want to lose that thought. But here I am, Bob Alexander, determined to fix his broken refrigerator with the handbook from his microwave. Now, 
needless to say, the odds of me doing that are astronomical. In fact, it will not happen. In fact, that is probably the stupidest thing. The Geico illustration was much more prevalent than what I've just told you because it will not happen. And I tell them this. Then I say this. Now, here's your problem after I just told them this story. Man is made by God. He's made of the elements in the ground. He's like my refrigerator. My refrigerator is a Maytag. You're a carbon-14 unit. You're made of the basic elements of the ground. God made man, and God gave the handbook by which man was to operate by. And not only is it the handbook that God was made to operate by, but it's the handbook that tells you how to fix what's wrong with man when the lights go out, when you go on the blink. Now, how stupid is it for me to think that I can fix my refrigerator with a, with a handbook from the microwave? It is just as stupid that you think you can fix something that God designed by a standard that man designed. You can't. You cannot. There's only one thing that will fix man. That is the owner's manual that came with man. That God tells you how you work, how you operate, and how to fix what's wrong with you. He said the Word of God is good for what? It's profitable for what? What's the first one? Doctrine. Tell you what's right. What's the second one? Reproof. Tell you what's wrong. What's the third one? Correction. Tell you how to fix it. What's the last one? Instruction and righteousness. Tell you how to keep it fixed. The owner's manual. So when I start to deal with somebody, I don't care if they're saved or lost. It's the same issue. The faces are changed. One's saved, one's lost. But here's the problem. If you're an unsaved man, you've tried to live your life, or an unsaved woman, you've tried to live your life outside the guidelines by which God told, it, told you to run it. Therefore, consequently now, you're on the blink. You're trying to paddle upstream. God put life, put man down here, and God said, I don't know how many thousands of times, He said to the nation of Israel, if you do what's right and you keep my word, you're not going to have any problems in life at all. If you don't, my, 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 Katie, bar the door, you're going to have some problems. So an unsaved man, he comes, he gets into life, he gets confronted with God, whether going to church or his parents or whatever, and he says, I'm going to do my own thing. I got the answers. I don't need God. I don't need the Bible. And after 20, 30 years, as Dr. Phil would say, How's that going for you? How's that working for you? Well, I've been divorced six times. I'm depressed. I'm on drugs. I've lost I don't know how many jobs. I'm not happy. I go buy new boats. I go buy new cars. And nothing's satisfied. My wife doesn't please me anymore. She only nitpicked. I don't have any joys in life. I don't understand, doctor, what's the matter. Well, I do. Your refrigerator on the blink. And you can't fix it by going with the microwave. Now, I get a saved person. He comes in and he says, well, I, I'm just all miserable. And he says, I, I'm not, I, he says, I got all kinds of problems. What do I do? How do I counsel him? I counsel him this way. You know what? You're a child of God. And for you, other than the unsaved man, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. And that when you do something wrong, the Bible says it grieves him. And when it grieves him, it comes to the point where he can't, he can't, he can't function. It's like stopping up your sink. Your sink is designed to flow. You wash the dishes, 
it flows. You put the things in, the water goes down. You may hold water in it for a while while you're washing the dishes and doing something here, but when you're done, you pull out the plug, and there's a hole there called the drain, and the water flows. Now, what happens in our house, anyhow, when my wife throws stuff away that she eats, she lets it go down the sink. I let it go down the sink. Not her. I eat a bowl of Cheerios. And, you know, you never get them all. But I'm too, I'm too busy to walk over to the thing and just dump it all out. No, it's got milk in it, but it's got six or seven Cheerios. Just put it down the drain. We don't have a garbage disposal. Or we do, maybe it's broke. I don't know, but we don't have one. So you just keep dumping that stuff down there, dumping that stuff down there, and it's just a few things. I mean, four or five Cheerios here. But you know what? You have four or five Cheerios, you eat Cheerios every day, but at the end of the week, you've got 20 some Cheerios down your drain. And then, you know, you go to the place when you eat spaghetti. And you know what? Unless you're using your tongue licking the plate, there's always spaghetti left on the plate. Now, give us, you know, you, what do you do? You, my wife says, honey, what does it take for you to walk over and just scrape the plate off? Darling, you don't understand. I am ministering to people. I don't have time to scrape that plate. I am about God's business this day. So what do you do? You scrape it down in the sink. And now the spaghetti goes down. And then you come to the place where you eat something else. Chili's another one. And you take it over there, and, and pretty soon you got, you got a week's worth of Cheerios. You got, you got kidney beans. You got, you got spaghetti fragments. You got down there, and you just wash them down the sink. And you know what happens one day when you turn the water on? Water doesn't go down. You put all that garbage down your sink, and now the water can't flow. And I'm telling you, as a Christian, when you start putting all the garbage into yourself, water type of the Holy Spirit of God, water type of the Word of God, can't flow. It can't flow. It can't flow. So what do you do? You look up old Paz Baptist Church in your phone book and says, oh yeah, Bob the Ready Rooter Man. He'll clean my pipes out. You know what you do? You get into the Word of God. And we're an unsaved man. I counsel him to get saved and start living his life with God. For a saved man, I tell him to confess his sin, get out of his sin, and start doing what's right with God. In both cases, the answer is the same. You just have to apply him different. Because a saved man has no power. He can't overcome and he needs to get saved. A saved man has the power within him. But he needs to realize that in both cases, he is a unit made by God that God gave the owner's manual for, and trying to live your life by another set of standards will not work. It may work for, you say, it's worked for me for 20 years. Yeah, I got away a week and a half one time before my drain blacked up. And I thought I was getting away with it, but you know what I was? I was just making it worse. And boy, when the plumber finally came, there was a price to pay because plumbers aren't cheap. He said I had so much stuff in my pipes I was blocking the neighbors. <laughs> now why, this is where the devil gets into it, why in designing houses that the pipes coming out of your sink come down, up, and down? To me, 
That is a trap of plumbers. That is how plumbers make their money. They, somewhere in this government, there's a conspiracy that says, when you build a house, plumbers need to work. Therefore, fix those pipes so that it'll catch everything. Because they have to work. And I'm telling you, it's the same thing in your life and my life. You cannot just put something in your life that isn't right with God and get away with it. You either confess it and God forgives you and God cleanses you, or the bottom line is it builds up and very shortly it's going to cost you more than it would have cost you if you would just get right with God. And you know what? That plumber cost me $500. $500 because Bob Alexander was too busy ministering to walk over and scrape the plate in here and scrape it down the sink. And the bottom line is, what goes in clogs. That thing wasn't designed for anything but water to go down. Your soul isn't designed for anything but water to go down. And when you put the junk in the garbage of this world, it's going to block your pipes. Counsel. How hast thou counseled him that has no wisdom? You know, there's two men in the Bible. I don't know if you know that or not. There's two men in the Bible. And they're all the way through the Bible. They don't have names. But they do. But they don't. It's one of those weird things. You know, in the Bible, you're coming through the book of of, of Proverbs and the book of Psalms and the book of Ecclesiastes, you find this men defined. But they don't have any names. Then when you come through all the rest of the Bible, you don't find them defined, but you find them with their names. You know what it is? It's real simple. It's a wise man and a foolish man. Now in Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, you find out what makes one wise and what makes one foolish. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The wise man says there is. The wise man builds his house upon a rock. The fool builds it upon sand. The wise man takes oil in his lamp. The foolish one doesn't. The wise man follows what the Word of God says and is blessed. The foolish man does his own thing and is unblessed. And you find the cause and effect in those wisdom books about those wise men and those foolish men. And then, going through the Bible, you find names put to their foolishness. Jacob and Esau. Cain and Abel. I mean the list is David and Solomon. Or David and Saul. I mean the list is endless. It goes on and on and on. And you find what makes a wise man and what makes a foolish man. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11 verse 14, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. As I said when we started this lesson today, to the average Christian, to the person in the world. When it says, where there is no counsel, the people fail. But in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. I was talk about in the Christian world. It always struck me in being years and years and years dealing with people. I mean to the tune of almost 35 years now. It's, it's always struck me that when they read that verse, they always thought of Christian counselors. And every, every 20 years, 15 years in the Christian world, the counselors change. I mean, and they make millions and millions of dollars off writing books how to solve your problems. They have seminars that you go to. To how, to live, learn, how to learn to live victorious Christian lives. 
And they talk about all that, and I don't know how many times I've heard somebody get up before they introduce that speaker or that seminar and said, the Bible says where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. And we are so blessed today to have Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine to be here to tell us how we're to live a victorious Christian life. I never saw it that way. I guess I'm just too narrow-minded or too biblically focused. I don't know. I always look at that verse when it says, where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counsel there's safety. I always looked at that as Dr. Proverbs, Dr. Ecclesiastes, and Dr. Psalms, and Dr. Song of Solomon, and Dr. Isaiah, because within that multitude of counselors, there is safety. Why is it that when God's people get into problem, the first place they go is to somebody else, and the second place they go, or maybe even sometimes the third, and maybe they never even get there, is the Bible that God gave them? Why is that? Why do we put so much confidence as human beings, Christian people, in what man says over what God says? I mean, why is that? Now, I know there are times in your life and you need wisdom. I, I don't have a problem with that. That's why God gave you a pastor. But I've never found anything that anybody ever got into in their life and I dealt with, and I dealt with some pretty hairy things. I never felt, felt getting anything in my life that somebody got into, no matter what it was, that the answer wasn't pretty simple, just getting to the Word of God. When you looked at counseling the way that the Bible lays out counseling, and counseling is simply telling an unsaved man he needs to get saved and telling a saved person he needs to start living by the principles of the Word of God. That's all. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't some technical things and some hard things because, as the Bible says, again in the book of Proverbs, a three-fold cord is not easily broken. I mean, you take a little piece of thread, you know, and, you know, that thing's just pretty, pretty, just a piece of cotton thread, and, you know, you take that thing down, and, you know, you can just snap that. You can put it around your finger, you can snap it. Put it around twice, if you're real strong, you can snap it. Well, there's guys who can tear phone books in half. Well, they take that thing and wrap it around four or five times, snap it. You know what? You wrap that same little piece of cotton thread around your thing 500 times, and you'll die trying to get, break it. You know why? Because it's just like sin. Yeah, you may do it once and laugh and get away with it. You may do it four or five times and think it's funny and get away with it and not have a real effect on it. You may do it a hundred times, but you give it 20, 30, 40 years of doing it, one of these days you're going to wake up and say, well, I'm going to break off this thing that I've been doing now, and you're going to find out how you're shackled to it. I told you before, Samson's a great story. I told you this the other day. When you look at his life, he is a perfect picture of a child of God who disobeyed God all of his life. And when you look at that thing... <clears throat> It's, it's, it's incredible. When you look at that thing, you see the, the process of his life and the sin in his life, that he's out there doing what, what he wants to do, and he has no idea that while he's doing it, that his sin is binding him. And then he's out there doing what he wants to do. He, had, he, was, he, he finally was playing games with everybody. He finally played game with the wrong gal. Fatal Attraction Part 2. Delilah. And Samson... He didn't understand that his sin put him in a bind. His sin binded him. Delilah showed him that his sin blinded him. And the Philistines took him one step farther and shows me how sin grinds you. Yeah, it does. It blinds you, it binds you, and it grinds you. The problem is, you're 50, 60 years old. By the time you get to that point, and it's too late. I told you this on a Thursday night a couple of weeks ago. Three people in the New Testament that get saved. What a story. What a principle. It's found in the book of Proverbs. Found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Wise man, the foolish man. That's what the Bible says. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Today. Why? Got a little girl back here. She's 12 years old and she's dead. In the Bible, dead is a picture of lost people. 
I've given you this before, but I'm going to say it again because not everybody was there and we need to hear it again because I'm trying to show you that in the Bible all the principles line up and this is the book to fix the carbon-14 unit that you are. Little girl down there, 12 years old, she's dead. Picture of an unsaved person. Jesus comes up, brings her back to life. Picture of her getting saved. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says she gets up and she walks. 12 years old, up and walks. Up and walks. Then another story in the New Testament, guy about... 30, 40 years old, dead. Picture of an unsaved man. Bible says that Jesus comes in, Jesus gives him life. Picture of an unsaved man getting saved. Bible says they got to help him to walk. He just didn't get up and take off. Got to help him walk. Then John chapter 11, Lazarus, an old man, 70, 80, maybe 90 years old. He's dead. Picture of an old man that is lost or a woman that's lost. Jesus comes in, gives him life. Picture that elderly person getting saved. What happens? He's bound in grave clothes. Don't you know your Bible says that all of our righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God? That's grave clothes. Here's a picture of a man that is 70, 80 years old that has bound himself up with his self-righteousness that now that he's saved, he can't even walk. And Jesus has to say, unwind that guy and get those things off him so he can walk. You know what the principle is? The longer you wait to get saved, the harder it is. Our little 12-year-old, she got up and she walked. The 20, 30-year-old, he needed help. The old guy, he hardly made it. Why? No counsel. Why? Because they, we, we deceive ourselves. We don't understand that sin, 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 it blinds us. Sin binds us. And then finally it grinds us. That's why I'm telling you. Back there in Exodus chapter 12, when they're eating that Passover lamb, and that Passover lamb is a picture of Christ, and it's a picture of salvation of Israel. You know what he says? He says, eat it in haste. You can't, you, can't get too, you can't get saved too quickly. The longer you wait, the more you bind yourself. The more you bind yourself, the more you blind yourself. And the more you blind yourself, one day you wake up and you're a slave to it, and now you've grind yourself. How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? Helping people get the right counsel. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, there's many devices in a man's heart. But the counsel of the Lord, that will stand. Oh, there's many devices. Psychology, psychology, psychiatry, theology, philosophy, religion, science, all of them. Man, and we talked about it the other night in the book of Ecclesiastes. Man stays up all night long thinking about devices that will get him around the Word of God and then wondering why that his life is as miserable as it is. You know, I don't know how old you are, but most of you, most of you at this point, or midway in your life. Some of you a little older, some of you a little younger. But most of you are midpoint. I would think now that you would begin to figure a little bit of it out. I would think that you lived long enough to see a man like Howard Hughes, who was the richest man in the world, and understand that riches don't bring happiness. I would think that you've been around long enough now to see your teenage idol or your pop music star, or your whatever. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with listening to that kind of stuff to some degree. I'm just saying, whoever you put yourself up to, I'm saying, I think now, after Marilyn Monroe's death, Freddie, 
Freddie Prince. I mean, Jimmy had all the, uh, after all of the dope and the drugs and, and to go and all of the mess and all of the things and all of the suicides, I would now come think that you would be getting to move toward the conclusion. But there ain't any answers in that. I, I would begin to deduce that. I mean. I, I'm not, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I have a reasonable form of intelligence. And I can look around me and I can see men who have, have money and people say, Oh, I'd like to be like that. Would you like to end that way? People say, Oh, look at all the fame that he has. As I said Thursday night. Think Michael Jackson's happy this morning? I don't know if he's guilty or not, but I'm just telling you that that kind of lifestyle brings that kind of stuff in your life. And as the Bible says in the wisdom books, it's, it's vanity. It's vexation of spirit. And there's people in this world that we look at and we say, oh, I'd like to have that. Oh, I'd like to be like that. I want to work to get to be just like that. And you know what? You don't see. You don't understand. You don't see the inside. You don't see that by the time they're 50, 60, 70 years old, their life is miserable because a life without God blinds you. It binds you and it grinds you. And the only counsel in this world worth getting is the counsel from the handbook that God gave for you and I who are God's creation to run by. Consider the ant. Don't sit there and tell me, well, God's an abstract in my mind. You can't prove God. You give me an hour that I can't prove it. I put you in a position where when you walk out of my house, you either say, he's right, or I don't want to believe it. I want to be the way I am. I, don't, I, I know there's a God, but I refuse to accept the truth. That'll be the issue. It won't be... Well, you know, that was a pretty good argument, but I just don't know for sure. It won't be that way. It'll be one or the other. You'll have to say, yes, I buy it. Or you'll say, you know what? Just let me tell you the truth, Bob. Really deep down inside, it isn't about whether there is a God or not. I know there is. I just don't want to believe it. Thank you. That's what it'll be. It won't be any, well, he's kind of he's right. And you know what? Well, he, he, he made me think. No, it'll be he made you decide. Because when I'm done with you, on one area, there'll be, there'll be no, somebody, hey, you can't really prove there's a God. Give me, give me an hour. And if you don't believe it, I'll give you a hundred bucks. I'm about a hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's an illusion on your part. And all I'm trying to do is to get you to wake up, hear the alarm before you get to be 50, 60 years old, and then come to the conclusion that you're like Lazarus, that you can't get out of it. If you're 30, 40, you're halfway there. My God, man, the Bible says three score and ten, 70 years is all God promises you. You're halfway there. You're walking around like God is an extinct dinosaur someplace who doesn't even exist. That the concept is abstract. I got news for you. I got news for you. Consider the ant. Why, the day I walked into that room as a 17-year-old young man, the ants were doing their ant thing. They've been there for years. Since I was nine, ten, seven years, they've been doing their little kingdom. And that morning I walked into my room, my mother told me that night before, Bob, get rid of that ant farm. They're crawling out of the top, they're doing everything, and you don't have time to take care of them, you're not feeding them, you're not doing anything with it, you know, get rid of it. 
The aunts heard that conversation with my mother. Because she could, when she talked, everybody could hear her. See, how do you know that? Because the neighbors called up and said, you got an ant farm you're going to throw out tomorrow? <laughs> you know what? The ants laughed. They said, <laughs> his mother said, look at the tunnels we built. Look at the eggs we got laid. Look at our queen. Look at our worker ants. Look at our armies. Yeah, right. That old middle-aged lady down there says they get rid of it. Ah, ha, ha. Morning I walked in, they said, oh, there he is. He was here every morning when he gets dressed. Don't even look our way anymore. We got our little kingdom over here. Where are the ants? Oh, we got a queen. We got eggs we've laid. We've got this. We've got a storehouse. Why, we even designed this thing for a water trap that if it rains we can go to high ground and we won't drown we have got it all figured out and we don't need that 17 year old guy hey wait wait wait. hey what's he doing hey he's not doing he's not going to work he's coming this way what's going on hey what's going hey he's picking up the ant thing what's happening here where are we going well crash my point is this The ant's opinion of my mother and me did not matter. You know why? I owned the ant farm. And your opinion of God in this world doesn't matter. He owns the ant farm. And the answer to men's problems, then how hast thou counseled him that has no wisdom in a word, Jesus. Jesus. Well, I failed today. I only got through one. We got three more to do. Next week, Job chapter 26, part Z. Every head bowed his prayer. Father, we thank you so much for love and your mercy. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. In the world, in the midst of this old world, it does not know what in the world they're doing. We're so thankful that you've given us a book that we never lose sight. Oh, I'm not saying we're perfect, and I don't mean to even suggest that we don't do what's wrong, because we do. But, Lord, we understand, we know. We know, Lord, we know that sin never finds, leaves a man any better than it finds him. You know, Lord, we know, we know that sin blinds us and it binds us and it grinds us. And Lord, we, we know that God is not an abstract concept to us, but he is everything. And we know that the why that CNN and ABC and all the world portrays this world and this life as belonging to us. And that God is out of the picture. He's just one of the other gods we hang on the wall of history. We know that that's not true, and we know that this world belongs to him because he is the creator. And, Lord, it isn't a fact of we have faith. We can prove it scientifically without a shadow of a doubt that God is who he says he is. And, Lord, we'll just thank you and praise you today for being who you are, for allowing us to be part of your great plan. And may we, Father, look at these questions and know that someday, Lord, as all the questions in the Bible, we're going to have to answer these particular ones. Help us, Father, to pass the test. What an easy test. A test that you give the answers before the test. Let us be found faithful. 
Let us understand who you are. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen.